0: Good morning. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together and worship together. And I pray now that you would set our hearts and our minds, focus us, I pray on your word, that you would strengthen and encourage us through the power of the Holy Spirit through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you at this time to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And we'll be taking up verses 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. As Rick had mentioned this morning, I will focus on just three words. Faith, hope, and love that we see in Romans. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us okay months ago my wife and I decided to put decor above the uh, cabinets in our kitchen to fill that dead space up there so part of that decor included signs plaques whatever you call three signs faith hope and love and it got me thinking and pondering if I do I understand Biblical hope, biblical faith, biblical love. How much do I understand that? And especially, how could I articulate that? Could I explain it very well? Especially in a culture that uses faith, hope, and love, but with a very different understanding than the Christian understanding of faith, hope, and love. How well would you be able to explain biblical faith, hope, and love? this is obviously significant for us because throughout the scriptures we see faith hope and love and in particular there's numerous passages where we see those three that are together they show up in the exact same or they show up in reference to one another paul besides this passage at least five other times in his letters weaves together faith hope and love we also see peter a couple of times in his book weaving together faith, hope, and love. And the author of Hebrews as well. We see faith, hope, and love sprinkled in there a couple of times. And so this is obviously important as it is foundational for the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love are gifts of God. We could call them graces given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to live an essential Christian life. There should be A radical change in a person's beliefs and behaviors based on faith, hope, and love as God has poured them out into our hearts. And so these three go together, but there's also an order to them. And in fact, Galatians chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6, Galatians tells us that faith brings about hope and expresses itself through love. So let's first take up faith. The idea of faith. But as we do that, the minute we begin to talk about faith, we have to be able to understand and realize the cultural baggage that's poured into that word. The minute, if I or anyone else says faith or mentions faith, oftentimes there's an assumption. There's words that are inserted right before faith, like blind faith or leap of faith or even just got to have faith. So with this, there's an assumption that faith is something that we have to muster up out of thin air, or faith is something that you have to have if you simply do not have evidence. There was a movie years ago, a very popular movie, that had this quote in it. It said, faith is the belief in something for which we have no evidence. Faith is the belief in something for which we have no evidence, And as one KU professor put it recently, he was quoted as saying, his greatest disappointment is that people will not separate faith and belief from reason and thought. Now, do you hear the assumption that if you have faith, you're really, that's different than reason. Or if you have belief, that's different than actually thinking, that they're incompatible. But yet for the Christian, This just simply is not true. It's not a proper understanding of biblical faith. But for the Christian, we can also fall into this as well. We can, in our own lives and in our thoughts, succumb to the understanding and absorb the cultural understanding around us that faith is a blind faith. And I fell into this years ago. I was uh, in college. I was on a project uh, in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with Campus Crusade for Christ, And I was excited about my growing faith. And so I decided I wanted to test my ability to walk by faith. In fact, I wanted to test it so much that I wanted to experience running by faith, blindfolded. So I made a decision that I would literally put a blindfold over my eyes, go down on the beach, and go for a run with a friend who's directing me. Because I wanted to run by faith. Now, do you understand the logic? You shouldn't, because there's really no logic there. Why did I do this? Because I was 19, I was excited about my faith, and I was stupid. (laughs) Really? It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. But what was humorous is that many of my friends were on that project. They're like, yeah, that sounds great. You should do that. You should run by faith that way. And that will teach you about faith. And, And the reality is, no, it wouldn't. It would just get me injured or wet. My point is this. The Christian life is not a life blindfolded, moving forward aimlessly by faith. To understand biblical faith, we actually have to look backwards. Biblical faith focuses backwards. Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. It is not blind faith. And in fact, when the scriptures speak of blindness, it speaks of those who are walking in darkness. And Christians have been called out of the dark. And so, biblical faith is not blind faith. Biblical faith is actually trust. We could insert the word trust there. It is trust in the past, it's trust in God's reliability, His faithfulness, His goodness. And so, we trust God based on the past. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us a good definition of faith. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance. Or confidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Or another translation, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain what we do not see. Now, where does the assurance come from? It's not wishful thinking. We trust God for the future based on what he has done in the past. Biblical faith, we understand, is confidence In a God who has revealed himself to be all powerfully or all powerful and all wise, we base our faith on historical realities. And so how do we understand assurance, biblical faith and assurance? We understand it. God gives us a sequence oftentimes in the scriptures. And it is God gives us sufficient evidence to where we may know which leads to trust. There's evidence, sufficient evidence, that leads us to understand and know of God. But it's not just an empty belief. It leads to trust, an active trust in God. And where do we see this? We see this throughout the scriptures, and especially as as the Bible even begins, and back in Genesis chapter 1, it does not begin with this. Okay, Israelites, this is not Moses beginning saying, okay, Israelites. So you're going to face a lot of people groups who want to destroy you. Cross your fingers. I hope you do well. Use the force. You know, it's none of that nonsense. It actually, when Moses began, he says, in the beginning, God. Because Moses is pointing his people, God's people, back to a reality. He's pointing them back to the fact that there is evidence that God is powerful, and also that he's personal. This God that has delivered you, he created all. And so we can trust him. Moses points them back. And in fact, if you could interview an Old Testament believer, the reality is we, we have to recognize, yes, they're dead. Hypothetically speaking, if we could interview an Old Testament believer and ask them what is the central point of biblical faith for them, what is the central event in the history, for them to have faith, they would point back to the Exodus. They'd point back to the Exodus. The Exodus is the place where God showed that he can throw off oppression, that he he freed his people from the realities uh, of Egypt, from the harshness and everything that took place there. So the Exodus is one that the Old Testament people would celebrate. In fact, the psalmists throughout the Scripture and the prophets continually point back to the exodus in their biblical faith to say, we can trust God, He is faithful. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 26 there is, uh, there's a portion there that God's people memorized. God commanded their people to memori- his people to memorize a certain portion that spoke back. and you don't have to turn there, I'll paraphrase. it's in Deuteronomy 26 essentially god had to memorize the reality that they had to cry out for help and god delivered them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand from egypt why would god have his people memorize this because they would pass it down for generations generations why because their faith at times would falter and they'd have to memorize and recognize this is the god who has rescued us and they would place their faith there again so if we ask an old testament believer what they what central thing they would place their faith in they would say god through the exodus he delivered us and that is a pattern of an even more glorious deliverance because if you ask a new testament believer what is our hope on what is our biblical faith set upon we would say it is the cross and it's the resurrection of jesus christ and a historical event have some as as some have said If you rub your hand, if you could go back in time and rub your hand down the cross, you would get a splinter in your hand. It's a historical reality that we place our faith upon. And so biblical faith looks back to the one that has proved himself to be faithful. And what has God done for us? We see it clearly here in Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So immediately Paul says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. Paul in the book of Romans has already established in the first few chapters that if left to ourselves, we are sunk. But because of the grace of God... Because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, we're justified, that we're justified, a legal term, we're declared righteous. In other words, there's a great transfer that takes place. That at the cross, because of our faith in Christ, our sin transferred to Christ. His righteousness transferred to us. Therefore, the guilty go free. The guilty actually go free. It's a beautiful picture of what justification is. But it doesn't stop there. This verse goes on to talk about the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as Romans would continue to play out, we see at various points that that in our sin we're under the wrath of God and we are declared enemies of God in our rebellion. And yet Paul is making the case, oh no, because of Christ, if we have truly trusted in him, peace has been declared. Peace, and it's a permanent peace. And so it goes on even further than that, this passage. Through whom we or through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have access. We have access not to a to a judge, but we have access to a heavenly father because of our elder brother Jesus. We have access to God. We can approach him, the scriptures say, with freedom, with confidence, we can draw near to God because of Christ. And we have access by faith into this grace. And grace, it's such a key word, that reality, that this is a gift of God, that we do not earn our faith. It's not based on our human effort. It truly is a gift that God has given his people. It's by grace that we understand our faith. And so what does this mean for us? It means a strong faith is not blind faith. Strong faith looks back. It looks back at the historical realities of God and what he has done for us. And it's through that, as we look back, that we recognize, oh, we can trust. And it grows our faith. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, speaks of faith in a growing sense. He says this, Now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason Has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. And this next point is key. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily praying and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind it must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examine a hundred people of, who lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? He brings up a great point, that our faith must be fed continually, continually. And so if we have weak faith, if we, if this morning we can assess our lives and say my faith is not that strong it's not a matter of just oh i got to try harder to have more faith it's what do we have our faith in that if our faith is not strong a year from now we don't have to make that same statement but it takes commitment commitments of 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 understanding of reading of meditating on the scriptures of continually seeing God's faithfulness to his people, that he's been faithful to his people, he will be continue to be faithful to us. And it could be that in our faith, could be that some here are wrestling through various issues of faith. Did the resurrection really happen? Can we really trust the authority of the scriptures? There are many things that we can wrestle through. How can God allow suffering? If God's real, how can he allow this? These are real issues, but we have to be diligent to be able to seek out the answers to these issues to cultivate a heart and mind after God knowing again that we look back in trust we can look back and see through trust that God has set us free he has given us a sure faith and also hope faith and hope are always linked together and so with that to understand as we for us to understand hope We have to realize what it is and what it isn't. Biblical hope is not this. I hope that a cold front moves in soon. That's just not biblical hope, is it? That's called wishful thinking with your fingers crossed. But biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is what we are sure of. In Hebrews 6, verse 11 says that we are to have full assurance of hope until the end so that we're not sluggish we're to have full assurance of hope how do we have full assurance and this takes us again back to our Romans passage in verse Romans 5 in the second part of verse 2 we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God or another way to say it that rejoice could be and we boast in the hope of the glory of God see as believers as Christians we're we're in attention. On one hand, we look back. We look back in faith at what God has done in the past. But we also look forward. We look forward in hope to the eternal realities that God has promised us. And we see that biblical hope relies on the very character and promises of God. And we could name a multitude of promises that God has given us. But this morning, I just want to bring up two promises that, that we see throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, these promises that we can be sure of. One is that in the waywardness of God's people in the Old Testament, there was a promise that was always held out for them. The promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a promise that's repeated over and over in the scriptures. It's come to be known as the covenant formula. God established a covenant, a relationship with this people. I will be your God and you shall be my people. We see it in, uh, especially in Exodus, if you wanna turn to Exodus chapter six. Exodus chapter six, this is prior to God delivering his people out of Egypt he makes this promise to them. He's speaking to Moses and he says Exodus chapter 6 verse 6, "Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God." And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from out of under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So we see there that promise I will be your God. You will be my people. I will provide. I will bring you out from under slavery in Egypt. Though you are sinful and messy, I will be there. I will provide. And we see a similar promise throughout Scripture, and it's the promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise is given to Moses, and Moses speaks to God's people. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is speaking to God's people, and he reminds them that God has said he will never leave us nor forsake us. That same promise is picked up where God speaks directly to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, but God extends the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Joshua. But then we see further in the scriptures, in the Psalms, Psalm 94, 14, the same promise is restated for God's people. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And the same promise is picked up in Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament. The promise, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And these promises are critical for us because we will face suffering of various sorts. Whether it's suffering by way of persecution for our faith and for us at times that may just simply look like pressure more and more to conform to the society, the culture around us. God promises he will never leave us, forsake us. But there's also other struggles. Struggles because of the fact that we live in a fallen world. Struggles like... Natural disasters that take place that devastate us, struggles of accidents, struggles of strained relationships and broken relationships, struggles of job difficulties, struggles of health, and it goes on. And struggle, the struggle of death that seems to always be near. What do we do? How do we hope in the midst of such struggles? It is two years ago now, as of this summer, that my wife and I actually lost a child. We were, uh, my wife was 20 weeks pregnant, so roughly halfway through our pregnancy. And whereas in weeks before we had felt the baby moving, the baby kicking, my wife uh, was not certain that she was feeling any movement whatsoever. So we scheduled a time with the doctor. We scheduled an ultrasound. And I'll never forget our conversation as we're there in the waiting room. Our conversation as we're talking to each other is along the lines of, in light of eternity, everything's going to be okay. But we are going to get news today that will either relieve us or devastate us. And so we go through with the ultrasound and sure enough, there is no heartbeat and we are devastated. And as we are there just devastated crying the only thing I could muster up and I remember this prayer directly the only thing I could muster up silently as we're crying and holding each other is God you are with us you are present here help us Lord you are with us you are present here help us and all I was doing in that point it wasn't an angry plea it wasn't an angry cry it was a pleading Based on God's promise that He has already given us, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so, when we are devastated, when we are facing circumstances where our back is, a, where our back is against the wall, where is our hope? Where is our hope? Romans 5 we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we have a great picture of that in Revelation. Feel free to turn there to Revelation chapter 21, where we give a great vision, a great glimpse of this glory, of this hope that we have. In Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There it is, that promise again that's picked up in the very end of the scriptures. He will, he will be our God, we will be his people. Verse 4 continues. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And going on at the, in the Revelation 22, there's just a great promise, a great summary you could say in verse 3. No longer will there be anything cursed. No longer will there be any curse that is found the promises that we cling to I will be your God and you will be my people but God but God have you seen the opposition do you see what's surrounding me do you see what I'm up against no I will be your God and you will be my people there's also the promise he will never leave us nor forsake us But God, it seems as though you're deserting us now. But God, it seems as though these struggles are too much to bear. God, it seems as though you're not there. It seems as though you don't care. No. He will never leave us nor forsake us is the promise that is repeatedly held out in Scripture for us. God's promise is that he will get it done. He will see it through. He will show himself to be faithful and trustworthy with every aspect of our lives. And so we look by faith. We look back at the cross and we see the goodness of God. But we also look forward. We look forward at the new heavens and earth. We look forward at the eternal glory, at the hope that we have in God, that he will make all things right. But why does God allow suffering? Why does God even allow it to happen in our lives? I don't want to presume too much here, but I will go based on what Romans 5 tells us in verses 3 and 4. More than that, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice, not because we enjoy suffering, but we enjoy what God does through our suffering. And if we think about it in our lives, When we suffer, aren't those the times in our life where we see our weakness and God calls us to draw to him in strength? Those are the times that we cry out to God. Those are the times that we surround ourselves with believers who can encourage us and pray for us. And God is at work in our suffering and in our trials. And so we are to rejoice. We rejoice because suffering produces endurance. And until hardships come on our life, we don't fully know what we're made of. But as hardships come on our life, we're able to see the character of God and who he is. And that he walks us through and it creates more and more endurance for suffering as we see the depth of the devotion of Christ to us. And endurance brings about character. The sense of character is that sense of being tested. And we can look at Job who suffered greatly in Job's statement was when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. There is a reality that suffering brings about a refinement in our lives. It is a testing in our lives, but it brings forth gold. And so suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. As Christians hold on in the midst of suffering, hope grows. And as we repeatedly suffer in life, we see more and more hope. And it even focuses our eyes on the things of heaven. It's a reminder that this earth is not our ultimate home, that we have a greater hope that we long for. And so the purpose in suffering brings about endurance. Patient endurance, what brings about godly character in our lives, and godly character leads to more and more increasing hope. So, how are we doing? When things are tough for us, when we do suffer, are we tempted to neglect God's grace, to grumble, to complain, to become self-absorbed, to shut ourselves off? Or in our suffering, are we quick to recognize by faith his goodness, his promises, his grace to us, that he does indeed draw near from us or draw near to us? See, suffering takes us away from naive optimism that, hey, life's great. Life's great. It's all going to turn out. No. We live in a fallen world. So suffering takes us away from a naive optimist, but it also takes us away from being a pessimist. And it moves us to being a realist, a biblical realist. And what would that look like? One who recognizes that God has a plan and a purpose for everything that happens Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, has a chapter on suffering, and he says this. He says that we have to recognize that everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And he also quotes from C.S. Lewis, a great quote where Lewis says, that they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. It's a great promise that no matter what, even the worst agonies from heaven's perspective will be turned into glories. We can't fathom it, can't fully understand it, but God calls us to embrace it. And in Romans 5, verse 5, Hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, our our hope is anchored in the very love of God that has been demonstrated on us. And the reality that we have gone from, from objects of wrath to objects of redeeming love. The love that we have through Christ is... It is glorious. And this is picked up in various places. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, you don't have to turn there, but there's a prayer that that Paul makes that he links faith, hope, and love together. And what he says about hope is his prayer is that we will be able to grasp the hope that we're called to. And he goes on to say, and that we will be able to grasp that we are God's inheritance. Now, God's inheritance, meaning that... We are God's treasure, that there is great delight in God, great love, that we are absolutely precious to God is the reality. And so what we see is this, this faith that is poured into our hearts, this love that's poured into our hearts. And this isn't, this isn't a little trickle. This is like fire hydrant language of love that is poured out on our behalf because of Christ and so when the scripture, throughout the scripture, when faith, hope, and love are linked, we have to be grounded first and foremost in the love that God has for us. But then that moves us out to loving others. And this is agape love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love of toil and sweat. Because let's face it, it's just hard to love people at times. It's hard to love. But that's when God calls us to a sacrificial love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, to love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And I believe this was put really well. There's a pastor who, uh, who, who spoke of the realities of how we are grounded in God's love. And because of that love, and out of that love, we love others. And uh, I, I did not think I could improve upon this. So I want to read his list. Five things that he says. He says, before God's grace apprehended me, I was dead in my sins. I had eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, and a heart that could not feel apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And since I have been redeemed, I must still say, as Paul did at the end of his days, I am the chief of sinners. So that love. Therefore, we shouldn't be shocked, disappointed, disillusioned, or angry when others mess up. You will accept them for who they are, sinners like you, desperately in need of God's grace and your love. And then a second point. God has chosen to love me unconditionally. He loves me for no other reason than it gives him pleasure and brings him glory. And as a result, for us, you will have no other choice but to love others unconditionally. You won't love them for what they do for you. You won't reject them if they don't measure up. His third point God loves us specifically. He died for me specifically, not just for a nameless, faceless mass of humanity. He called me to himself by name. The fact that he loves me like this exhilarates and humbles me at the same time. Therefore, you will love others with specific grace. It's easy to love all Christians in a general way, it is quite another thing to love specific people. For what they specifically are, in spite of their particular weaknesses and shortcomings. This fourth point, his love for me is irresistible. When the Holy Spirit opened my eyes, I wanted to run into the arms of Jesus. In the words of John, I loved him because he first loved me. So, our love should demonstrate irresistible grace, such unconditional love that will draw them irresistibly to us and then irresistibly to Christ who has loved us. And his last point, his love will persevere to the end. Jesus said, no one can can pluck the sheep from my hands. And Paul put it another way. Those he justified, he, glori- he will glorify. So if today I have the most sinful day of my life, I know that when I put my head on the pillow tonight, he will not love me any less than he did this morning. And if I have the best day of my life, he will not love me anymore. And as a result, this grace turned horizontally will persevere to the end. It will never forsake or abandon its commitments. It won't run from those who frustrate, reject those who irritate, or wall off those who disappoint. Oh, we can't do this. (laughs) Oh, but Christ did. And he empowers us. And we look to him and we ask for his strength to love other people well. What God calls us to in faith, hope, and love is in faith we look back. We look back at the reality of what God has done. He has delivered his people. He has provided for his people. And we see it ultimately culminating in the cross and resurrection of Christ. And we look back in faith. But we also look forward. We look forward in hope, in hope of eternal things, and especially with the promise, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will get it done. And as well, he will never leave us nor forsake us. We live in that tension, and while we're in that tension, we love. We love sacrificially. We understand the love of Christ that was poured out to us, and through that, we seek to love others with sacrificial love. Let's pray.